Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms, our So What series with Tracy Bannon, Senior Principal at MITRE. On this series, Tracy and I unpack some of the biggest trending news topics in federal technology. Today, we get to talk about her presentation at RSA in May um, on one of my favorite topics of the day, which is generative AI, uh, such as ChatGPT. So, so glad we're doing this, Tracy. It has been a while. I am so glad that we have just reinvigorated things and we're getting connected again. Yes. Well, and ChatGPT, man, it really is one of my favorite topics to talk about. So I um, had the pleasure of watching a recap of your RSA presentation, which for our audience, they will be able to watch it um, on demand, I think June 1st, right? I, I believe tomorrow. that's correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. I believe that's correct. Yeah. All right. So um, let's start with... If you if you can give us a quick summary of what your presentation at RSA was, well, so RSA, if folks are not uh, aware, is the RSA conference. RSA, if you have token that you use to log in, it's a changing token. They're the big leaders in that, and they created this conference decades ago. It is the preeminent conference about cybersecurity. Uh, I was there specifically on DevSecOps Day and really focused on talking about SDLC, right? Software Development Lifecycle, because that's what I do. I'm a software architect. So looking at how generative AI can be applied. So the first place that we started was, well, why don't we define generative AI? And I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to do that just for the sake of anybody who's not aware. Generative AI is under the umbrella of large language models. And a large language model is just that. It is a model where vast amounts of text data have been fed in and it uses statistical analysis to figure out the likelihood that words or phrases go together. That's it. Now, there are lots of complexities to how it does that mathematical scoring and figuring those things out. You hear about the number of parameters that a model has. But that's what a large language model is. And when we say generative, it's because it is generating something. So it is it is not inventing things from scratch. It's generating it from all of the data that's been fed in. So when I start to think about uh, generative AI and why it matters to the SDLC, I start, need to think about low code and no code environments. I need to think about custom development, different parts of the spectrum and how it can help but really how we have to be really careful about what can happen with it. Um, and I could take this entire time and, and go down the rabbit hole and, and walk you through every piece of it. Um, some, of the, some of the big moments are asking people to walk away and figure out what their own organizations are doing. So I'm going to start with that imperative. I'm going to start with the very last thing that I would say to people. Um, first thing to do in your organization, turn around and ask folks, what are you doing? Are you using any kind of language service, any language, large language model? Are you using chat GPT? Are you using perplexity? Ask the question and ask it in an open way and ask them how, how are you using it? Why are you using it? And what are you finding? 
those bits, putting those into place first and understanding that will allow you to then rationalize, are you at risk? Is it actually helping people or is it fundamentally either a security gap or productivity loss? Because everybody talks about how much it's going to help. It doesn't always help as much as we think it does. Well, and for the general population, you know, chat GPT, which just came on the market hot, really Mm -hmm. for general population, it's been in within the last 10 months, right? Yeah, November. Mm -hmm. November. Okay. However, this generative AI has been around, especially in the developer's world for a long time. You guys have been using this for a while, right? But in different ways and not okay. as, and the models are getting that that much more improved and that much more quickly. Uh, if you think about when uh, chat GPT from OpenAI went live, it was 3.5, then very quickly became 4.0. So increasing the number of parameters and the complexity and the sophistication of the model and how things are knitted together. But yes, we've been using it for a while, but not in the ways that people think. Um, we haven't been using it to generate a lot of code. Don't listen to what people are telling you. There uh, is an offering called Copilot, um, which is from Microsoft. It is from it is with um, GitHub, GitLab, GitHub. <laughs> Anyways, I always get the two mixed up. Sorry, guys. Um, but it is it. They trained it by looking at all the repositories of of code that people had out there. Doesn't mean it's really great. As of the last time I looked it up, about three weeks ago they still only had a 26% acceptance rate of the code that's being generated. What's that mean? Well, it means it's not that good yet. Um, There are other offerings, a group called Tab9 does more of a code completion. But even if I'm trying to use it to write code, you need to think about what it's doing. Remember, you you hear in the media right now that people are, are seeing chat GPT hallucinations. I mean, it's making up junk. It makes up junk code too. Sometimes it's okay, but I got to say to everybody, you're not going to lose your job. Not tomorrow. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be a massive difference in change, but it's so embryonic right now. If somebody tells me that their development staff is getting 80% productivity gains, I will say BS, show me, show me. Yeah. So So coming at it from a non-developer point of view, from Mm -hmm. a marketing point of view, I've found it incredibly useful as a brainstorming tool, Mm -hmm. as um, helping me make my words sound smarter. (laughs) Like, and I'll I'll even tell it that that's even the prompt. I'll type something in and I'm like, make this more formal or make this more Mm -hmm. casual and conversational. And I have never, as long as I've been using it for the last several months, taken something that it's written at verbatim. Mm-hmm. I take it, I read it, it gets stuff wrong, I fix it. But if I were not a subject matter expert in what I was asking it to help me with, okay. um, the, I mean, it's it was wrong. Out, it's wrong, it's disinformation. And you and I were talking about this, like the potential for unintentional disinformation mm-hmm. getting pushed out. Mm-hmm from ChatGPT, I think is enormous. So there are, there are so many things to unpack with just this. So we're <laughs> going to put the technical part aside for a little bit. We'll come back to that later because you know I always gravitate towards that. There was a lawyer, I believe it was 
Friday of last week, who has charges of some sort against him, some kind of judicial hearing is being held against him because he used chat GPT. Well, it seems like it should be an okay thing. You've taken all the legal books, you fed them all in. Why? Well, it turned out that a number of the cases that he was citing as precedents were hallucinations. They were bunk, but he was pressed for time. He wow. put it in, brought it out, read it, didn't double check. Yeah. Bang, bang, that happened. Um, I have been able to feed in my own transcript that I know by heart and say, summarize this to have it insert chunk in there. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, and actually you're familiar with her as well, um, Katie. Yeah. Um, this Katie is Craig, a this, former Katie guest, Craig, has her former own guest. podcast, 505. Yep. Yes. And she, uh, it, it told me that she was a theater and communications major. And I can tell you that is, is nowhere not. near true. Fantastic <laughs> communicator, right? Ain't no drama around this woman, not at all. So, um, you know, it's the, there are two different things at play here. There is just the fact that the models are not yet as sophisticated as they will be. You don't have easy access to determine the provenance. Where did it get that piece from? There are some other models, one in particular, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure which language models underneath it, but as a service, it's called perplexity. And when you type it in uh, and it gives you a response, it actually gives you footnotes. And so you can look at the footnotes mm. and, it, and it takes you to where it got the, the originating information. Yeah. Not as verbose, not as convincing as chat GPT, but it brings up another bigger point. And this is where my head goes with both the talks that I gave, as well as the clients that I'm talking with, who is building the model, who's controlling the model, who's putting data into the model. Let's say that Carolyn Ford is a lawyer and she's looking up precedents. If I really wanted to tank her boat, wouldn't I figure out ways to poison that? Mm hmm. It's yeah. data poisoning. You can model poison. Um, their quality assurance of the models themselves is massive. Nobody's talking about that because it's still so fun. First thing well, my husband did was sat down and made chicken jokes. Like, well, and the compute behind those models is so massive and expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, who, like you said, who's controlling them? I just, I'm reading Four Battlegrounds by Paul Shari, excellent book on AI. And it goes into the history of chat GPT. Um, and like, to your point, who's controlling those models and what's the agenda? Mm -hmm. So, And what are they doing to notify you? So yeah. consider different ways you might be using it. It might not be chat GPT, it might be another model and you may be subscribing to their service. So let's say I'm subscribing to it and it's helping me, I'm gonna go to the technical part. Maybe it's helping me to put in some kind of algorithm and I can use it for my end users. And maybe it helps them filter things or it helps them find things or search things. So I'm subscribing to a model when they have a problem, either a security issue or they're getting errant data coming into it. How would I ever even be aware? And I'm directly passing that along to the next guy who's using my app or the thing that I've created. So there's a lot that we need to do in determining what our role is when using that capability. Are mm -hmm. you using it to generate and build something? Ooh, be careful what you're building. Are you building marketing? Are you building tweets? Are you building a LinkedIn post? Um, or 
are you building something that could put others at a, a different type of risk, a physical risk or a cyber risk? All of those things count. They're yeah. all a part of this. So let's talk about, let's go more technical here and, mm -hmm. and talk about it from, from your developer hat point of view. Bernd Greifenieder, who full disclosure, he is the founder and CTO of Dynatrace, which is where I work, recently wrote a blog on generative AI, and he addresses a lot of its potentials in the developer world specifically. His point is there's potential. Mm -hmm. He also in the same blog says, and there's got to be some guardrails. So talk about, first of all, as a developer, how you are using it, if you are, and where you, like the potential, how soon, how real. I still find it. So the work that I've done with it, the tests that I've done, the different services that I've tried have done a marginal job so far. Um, so if you think about writing a software ecosystem, I'm not writing one tiny little thing. And so if you think about asking chat GPT or asking one of these services to create something, how much information do I have to put into it to give it all the context that it would need to understand what the rest of the system does or what the rest of the system needs to do? Right now, we're not able to give it all of the context that it needs. So what we end up doing is we do routines or the most effective thing that I found it for, I don't like it to generate code for me because I'm finding it has flaws. It doesn't compile. If I have to spend more time debugging what chat GPT gave me, then it would take me to write it or to phone a friend and say, hey, I've got to try to figure this out. What would be the best way to code it? Well, that's that's an issue. The, the, the What comes out of it though uh, is generated, but if I'm not going to use it to... Um, if I'm not going to use it to compile, I can use it in another kind of cool way. Modernization. When we have lots and lots and lots of COBOL, we've got lots and lots of ADA code. We've got things written in languages that people are not being educated on anymore. And we have an aging group um, that we're not, have not been able to backfill. So we're either going to have to maintain that code that doesn't have a lot of documentation, shame on other generations, uh, shame on all of our generations that didn't create the necessary documentation. But think about being able to take that piece of code in a language that's getting archaic and saying, explain this to me, explain the intention mm. of this. So there's great power there now to have it explain it. The problem is I don't want any new in career developers, new in career technical folks, new in career anybody leveraging this from a technical perspective because they aren't able yet to grasp where the errors are. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my friend, Brian Finster. Uh, he works with Defense Unicorns. He was originally was with Walmart for many years. And we hopped on the phone with Dave Farley um, and he's written a, a couple of system engineering books. He's, he's quite well known. We got on a call this morning just to discuss these pieces. What are the security issues? What are the quality issues? Are we all going to lose our jobs tomorrow? No, we're not. The way that we can use them is uh, that we should be limiting junior people. Um, if we want them to understand language and put some, uh, put some code in and be able to dissect it, it can be good for a little bit of that interactiveness to it. I can take code and I can have it explained, but 
there's a risk there. Am I taking corporate code? Is it proprietary? Am I feeding it in and saying, now explain it? So we're getting into some muddy waters with that. Um, there are a lot of cool stuff that's on the horizon. Even though that article that you cited, even though the blog post um, did mention there's potential for it to do some boilerplate stuff for us, not a whole lot of that yet. It's too new. We're, we're, we're in the middle of building things. Yes, there's a lot of playing with how it will help us in the future, but it's still embryonic. And everything that I'm telling you now in six months, it'll be different. It'll be massively different because of the rate we are working through this. Um, it's interesting that with generative AI, there are things that it can jumpstart to help you with because um, generative AI is not only text-based with languages. There are... Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There are visuals, right? You can do graphics. Um, and so there's some interesting things there. There are some user interface designers. Like I have an entire list of different types of generative AI uh, and how it helps low code, no code environments, for example. Um, interesting. Low code, no code uh, is often kind of looked down on by the, the developers, the system engineers of the world, the software engineers. It ha really does have a place. People yeah, need so to be able to answer their problems. Sure. Define low code, no code. Sure. Um, the difference between low code and no code, these are platforms, digital platforms that jumpstart things. A lot of times they will use what you see is what you get, a visual uh, canvas to allow you to pull things together, put arrows between them, click on what you want them to do. So it gives a way for somebody who is not an engineer to develop a capability that can be a an application. Mm -hmm. Like back in the day when I developed my own website, what I did was mm -hmm. I used a template. Kind of, kind of, okay. but I wouldn't, but I could, but imagine if the template was broken down into smaller bits and pieces. The difference between low code and no code is that low code is intended for someone with an IT background that, uh -huh. can, that can do some amount of um, configuration and programming on top of it. So they can actually, you know, add, um, add, uh, add on to it. No code is intended for, Somebody is completely business and we need to sit them in front of this and let them answer their own business problem. Yeah. Um, so these platforms um, have been working with AI for a bunch of years. It's actually interesting that they have been more open to leveraging this than the software, custom software, right? Traditional custom software. And I think it's because they've for a long time have been looking for the fastest way to get to value. Um, whereas if you are a software engineer, you want to get that value, but you also are highly trained and concerned about getting it right, the quality, right, the reliability, those things that are underneath. Whereas with low code and no code, the platform does that. So generative AI in these low code, no code platforms has been around for a bit and they have just a whole bunch of cool stuff um, that they're doing. Well, and um, so maybe that's where we address like there were jobs that went away with this kind of low code, no code, right? Because now you don't, but did, did the jobs no. go away or no. did? Okay. No, 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 no. Jobs haven't gone away. We don't have enough technical people. We don't have enough software engineers. We don't have enough developers to fill the void. So instead of that, let's democratize it. Mm -hmm. Let's make it so that Carolyn, you have something that you need to do. Let's make it so that Carolyn can do what she needs to do. Uh, and that's that's really the core of it is getting after they they sometimes call them citizen developers. I wouldn't call them developers. I would say we've democratized it so that people who are non-technical in nature can create technical capabilities. That's what it is. Um, 
So I'm going to bring us forward though. Are there ways that it can help me as a software developer? It can do code completion for me. That's pretty helpful. Um, so I start to enter something and it bang, it fills it out, a couple extra lines, kind of like code com or word completion when you're typing in uh, your Gmail right. and it pumps out the whole but sentence. But you don't still have to spend some time to verify that it's... Generally not. You tab past it. And now it was amazing when it was a, a half a word and now it puts a whole phrase out there. So we're getting used to it and, and starting to trust it. Code completion is more trustable than code generation. With code generation, I, I can use natural language and say, I want a function that does this. But it'll oftentimes give me four or five options. And so I can click through those options. If I'm new in career, how do I pick? I don't have the tools. I don't know how to pick those. So it's really good for somebody who is more advanced in their career, who's more experienced. There are some interesting things that are coming up with code review. Uh, and so, I, but it does mean that I need to feed in my code. So maybe not with chat GPT, but maybe with my own private model that I feed yeah, it in. Because I was just does... going to say, as soon as we put our own stuff into chat GPT, it's no longer our own stuff. It's right. now out for the whole world to have right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So you say, put it into your own model. You have your own model. I am working with a group and we're standing up our own model. Um, and, but we're doing this as a, as, as something, as a community, we're literally coming together, paying for it by ourselves so that we can get the experience in building the models. Big firms have been able to do this. Um, I was uh, talking with my friend, DJ Schleen, and he works with Yahoo. He's part of the paranoids from Yahoo, the security group there. And they were looking and beginning their journey to create their model until very super recently, as in weeks, it was yep. essentially cost prohibitive That's for anybody. That's what I was just going to say. Again, not only the amount of data needed to create a good model, but also just the money. The compute. Mm -hmm. The compute. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So really you're talking about the Yahoo's and Amazon's of the world that can do this. Generally though, chat GPT is rolling out or has rolled out a business class that is supposed to be able to isolate what mm. you put in from others. Now, show me your security architecture and then I'll believe you. <laughs> right. So, so Nick Shalon, you sent me this uh, post by Nick. Mm -hmm. I think what he did with Ask Sage is super cool. It's brilliant. Um, talk to me about it a little bit, because I think this is a good example. Mm -hmm. It is oh. one of the best examples that okay. I have seen. He got on it immediately. He saw it as soon as he realized, I mean, split second. So he's not generating code in, in general people. There, there's probably some of that, but what he was looking at is the full software development life cycle for government. And where do they struggle? The amount of contracts that they have to create, the amount of language that they have to interpret. So what if I was able to feed in uh, uh, RFIs, a uh, request for information. I publish it out. Uh, I have 10 questions that I'm asking industry and I want industry to help me by providing me information. Well, let's say I get 20 responses. I can push those in and it can analyze those. It can help us to grade and interpret all of those different responses. That's a really good use because it's language for language. Um, it also okay, so can wait, help with contracts. Me... Yeah. Yeah, Let me tell ahead. you what I think you just said. Uh huh. So ask Sage, you create your RFI. Mm -hmm. You feed it into Ask Sage, and then contractors can respond. Like, how do they? 
It would be a little bit different. You would put it, you post it out, get the responses, and then it would be up to me to, as, as the person who got them to post in what all of those responses are. So if I, if I got 20 responses, I can put them in and then for question number one, analyze, right. The question number one responses from all of those different contractors, vendors, industry, uh, academia, all kinds of people respond to these. So you can tell it to, to group them compare them, analyze them and, and help you pick the top three. Right. Right. Or at at a minimum provide you with what the similarities and the differences are. If you just did that to get through 20 of them, it does the language analysis to understand like when we're reading language, when we're reading something like this, you have to get into the groove of the person who wrote it or the team that wrote it because the language differences from one company to another company, except for the buzzwords, pretty dynamic style differences, right? This levels that playing field um, because it, the the style of the writing is less important than statistically the, the words that are going together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, you can also use, uh, well, there's a myriad ways to use Ask Sage. One of the things I like the most is generating contract language. Um, contract language, acquisition strategy aspects, has to be very, very specific, but oftentimes it's very repeated. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so if I write something, um, (laughs) I'm buying toilet paper over here and I want to buy toilet paper over there. And yes, I'm being facetious. I would want that same, um, I would want that same language, but I would want all of the additional clauses, all of the additional things um, that go with that. So it it is good for that. You're saying it used a lot in the legal space right now um, because it is pure language analysis, but I'm going to say the same thing I said earlier. It's only as good as the model itself, as the information that's going in, garbage in, garbage out. Um, so if you're loading, if you're not loading in good quality data, if you don't have quality assurance of the model, it doesn't matter if Nick has created it and is hosting it on Azure and has it isolated um, so that it can be classified, or if it's out there and you've just logged in from the public internet into chat GPT major, doesn't matter if the data is not solid, if the data is not being watched. Okay. So before we run out of time, let's mm-hmm. let's do a little roundup of what we've talked about. So what do our listeners, what do you want them to know about generative AI? Okay. And what are, I guess let's, let's just leave it at that. What do you want uh, them to know about generative AI? <laughs> it's not ready for prime time. And it's really cool. It's really cool. It is fun. I can rat hole on it for a really long time. <laughs> I have to as we all can, as we all can. Um, the second thing is that it's not always correct. Um, remember that it speaks to you with conviction. There's such good language constructs that when we read it, we're immediately gobsmacked with how professional it sounds. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it seems authentic. It seems credible to us. Now, ChatGPT is actually added on its page when it is generating stuff for you. It says maybe inaccurate. I mean, it's right there beside the results that it's giving you. Oh, I haven't gotten that one yet, but I don't get into really technical stuff. It will tell me things like, well, I'm just a, not just, I'm a, I'm a language model, blah, blah, blah. So here's here's something, but this is not my specialty, essentially. This is literally a label at the bottom of the page now. I mean, it's permanently at the bottom of the page. I think it was May 24th was the last time I saw it. Um, So just a couple of days ago that it was posted. So the current tools are 
are growing, I want everybody to understand and to play with it a little bit, but not put in personal information. Just, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't ask it to do your taxes. Don't nothing like that. Don't ask it to, you know, don't give it all of your symptoms of why your knee is hurting. Cause <laughs> I actually did that to try and figure out. Um, don't, don't do that. Wait, um, wait, but did it tell you why your knee was hurting though? Uh, yeah, it actually was interesting, but I had to I had to play with the prompts. I had to go back and forth and give it more information and give it more information because it builds during a session. You build yeah. on the question that you ask or the information yeah. that you gave it. So it builds I've, on that. I found it's made me a better um, question asker. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> right. Because you have to figure out the right question mm -hmm. or the right. right prompt to get what you're looking for. Exactly. Exactly. So know that it, it is going to be incredible. Know that we have to really get focused on the ethics of using these tools. Know that there are big security risks, but get familiar, get familiar. It isn't going to take your job today. It is going to augment many jobs, but it's not gonna take them completely away. Um, you're, if you're a copy editor, you're not suddenly going to be thrown out on your ear. Uh, if you're a developer, you're definitely not gonna be thrown out on your ear. So those would be the, the big things that I would take away. If anybody wants to get into details, though, we want, really want to ferret out um, some of the nuances within, you know, applying it to the software development lifecycle. Um, people can reach out to me. I will be glad to have a conversation on this. Fantastic. Well, and you've already, like I said, your RSA presentation is going to be live soon. Um, and you've talked about this with Katie on her podcast, mm -hmm. but um, that's fantastic. They can reach out to you uh, mm -hmm. just directly. But and there are a couple other links that I'll provide where I've I've done some recordings on these so people can consume it on their own time and, okay. and just Great. be thinking about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I I mean I'd just like to echo what you said about not taking it at like verbatim. You need to still be an expert about what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And if you're not an expert, okay, take what it's got, but you got to verify it. Go find sources that um, verify the information that's coming out of it. You can't just take it as is. And it's been, it has been a time saver for me and it's helped me get unstuck when I'm writing things. There's a quote by a fellow by the name of AJ Agarwal. He is a professor at the University of Toronto. And I, I just love this quote. And maybe we can end with this. Chat GT, GPT is, a very, is very good for coming up with new things that don't follow a predefined script. It's great for being creative, but yes. you can never count on the answer. Yeah, exactly. It's good brainstorming. It's wonderful for that. Mm -hmm. But imagine brainstorming with words, literary words, and brainstorming code that could yeah. have flaws and compiling where it's not quite there yet, but it will be. I believe, I truly believe, I believe in my heart of hearts that in years to come, we will ask, we will say, where were you? when chat GPT rolled out. I agree. All right. So I get to ask you um, a couple of tech talk questions since okay. you're our main speaker today, not okay. just a host. Um, what was your favorite part of the RSA conference? What was the standout for you? Um, it's actually really personal standout, um, not what people would expect, but I'll give you two. So the personal and the professional. The personal is that it's the first time that my husband and I have gone to a conference together in two decades. Um, and he's operations, I'm development. And we came at things with very different perspectives, but it was so much fun. 
because we were there together. I wasn't I taking a picture and, and or texting him about it. So experiencing that in that way was fantastic. Um, the other thing that was both a favorite, but I can't say it's a favorite, a big takeaway for me from RSA was that there's a real lack of focusing on secure by design and we're still highly reactive. Everything is about how we detect the problem instead of preventing the problem in the first place. Um, but there are always so many good people. There are so many well-intended people that are trying to make the world safer. Yeah. And back to your passion for DevSecOps, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. You do it right. You do it right the first time or it's mm -hmm. not worth doing at all. Exactly. <laughs> or at least do it small enough that I can fix it quickly. Yeah. All right. Give me something to read or listen to. Oh, gosh. Uh, something to read or listen to. Uh, gosh, from a military perspective, I recommend a book called The Kill Chain uh, by Cameron Bros. Um, yeah. And so that's a, a big one on my list. Um, I wasn't expecting that. So I'll turn around and look at all my dozens of things that, that, you know, books that I pick up, um, project to product, uh, by Dr. Mick Kirsten is another fave of mine. And all of these have nothing to do, um, with generative AI, um, things to listen to real technologists podcast that mm -hmm. is uh, new and it's focused on thought diversity and getting after technologists and there, yep, you can see the t-shirt. Nice. Yeah, yeah, there's the plug for that. I would listen to that. And I would also, if people would want a little bit of cybersecurity every day, 505 podcast uh, is 20 journalists from around the world. Um, and that's what we do um, every day at 505. You get between four and six little episodes. Uh, it takes less than 10 minutes and it gives you the latest in open source and cybersecurity news. So that those are those things I would listen to. I love the 10, less than 10 minutes too. So do you do anything like for brain candy? Read, I watch, um, on, trace. <laughs> well, actually I just finished uh, Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights and it, you liked it, it floored me. It, it was wonderful. And his, and I, I listened to it as well. And he has a technique where something where he sees a sign and realizes that that is a, a green light in his life. He'll just go green light. So that has made its way into the Bannon house lexicon. <laughs> okay. So that that's some candy. It's definitely some brain candy on the side, but. All right. All right. I will take it into, honestly, nope, not going to go there. <laughs> opinion on Matthew. I like him a lot. Um, Good so, actor. All right. He gets well, the job done. Yeah, exactly. Okay. This is so fun. I love talking to you. <laughs> well, let's hang together again and soon. Absolutely. So, and thank you to our listeners. Um, there will be a lot of good links of that Tracy already mentioned in the show notes that you can go to share this episode, smash that like button, and we'll talk to you soon on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.